0: Okay, folks, we should probably begin our work session, Iowa City City Council work session for Tuesday, August the 6th, 2019. The first topic on our work session agenda is to continue discussion of the development review process. But before we do that, I want to, again, welcome Mazir-Saray back from Sudan. Thank
1: you. It's great
0: to see you, Maz. Thanks. And uh, I'm glad you returned safely and all that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I'm here. Yeah, I bet. Okay, how are we going to proceed, Jeff?
2: Well, I thought I'd just give a quick overview of the staff memo uh, and and then hopefully allow you all to have a discussion. And and staff is here to help uh, answer questions and guide you through that. You do have a memo in your August 1st information packet under the work session heading. Um, this follows the joint work session that the city council had with the Planning and Zoning Commission on July 24th that was facilitated by Tony Perez of Optico's Design. I thought that was a... Uh, great discussion that the Council and the Planning and Zoning Commission had, and, and we want to just take this opportunity, while that's fresh in your minds, to dive a little bit deeper into the um, specifics of, of our development process here in Iowa City, and, and start to learn from you um, what changes you may want to make to the process, or clarifications you may want to make to the process. So the memo that you have in the packet... Um, starts by giving a very brief summary of the land development process. Uh, There's a a figure there that takes you from comprehensive planning all the way to final permits and inspections. Uh, I would encourage you to look at the attachment to the memo if you haven't had a chance to already Um, but that will give you a much more detailed rundown of what takes place in each of those steps and I think that's just a handy reference for you to to bookmark on your computer or to keep um, as you see different Uh, projects come and go at different stages, you can always refer back to that to know exactly what you're looking at when you're reviewing that and what staff is looking at when we have administrative reviews. Uh, In the memo, uh, we gave a a very brief overview, uh, kind of the takeaways that that we had as staff uh, from that July 24th uh, work session. Um, I, I'll let those speak for themselves, and you all can share your insights and, and thoughts on how that meeting went, if you wish. Uh, but the, really, the, the crux of the, the um, issue today is is really getting at where we where we might have some misaligned expectations on the development process, and we're talking about expectations, we have to realize that there's multiple stakeholders in the process. Uh, There's staff, there's developers, there's planning and zoning, there's council, and there's the general public as well. And our observation as staff is that um, in the last couple of years, some of those expectations for what is required at various stages and and what applications are going to be judged on are, again, misaligned um, uh, at times. So we end the memo with, um, three questions that we'd like you to focus on tonight, and of course, if you think that you need to spend some time talking about other related issues, we'd encourage you to do that, uh, but the, the, um, first question would be, um, given what is required by code now for applications, and that's contained in the memo, and we're gonna primarily focus on rezonings, because I think that's where probably 90% of the, the issues are. if you look at what we are requiring for those applications, are there certain instances where you want more information? And can we clarify that up front with the developers, with the public, with again the Planning and Zoning Commission and staff. Uh, Tony talked a little bit about this in his presentation, uh, but it's not always that two two rezonings aren't always equal, and um, it may be that for some rezonings the council uh, expects a higher level of detail, and that's not uncommon. Uh, so so don't think that uh, don't think that that would be an unusual step for a, a city council to take. Uh, <coughs> for example, most cities have higher level of scrutiny on projects (coughs) that take place in their central business district. Some will have design review elements. uh, uh, Some have design review committees. um, But there's oftentimes a higher level of review. Uh, During the meeting, the gateways came up. I think a a planning and zoning commissioner uh, mentioned that there should be higher level of scrutiny as you're coming in off of I-80, or maybe if you're coming in (coughs) off Uh, highway 1 or 6 uh, into our community, maybe there's a higher level of scrutiny. Could be projects of a different scale, um, or different land uses. Uh, maybe you want to give higher level of scrutiny to multifamily projects over a certain size. Um, those one of the discussions we want you to have. What do you feel are those thresholds? And what types of situations do you find yourself really wanting more information? And, and in what situations are you comfortable making your decision on the current requirements, was that the crime dog just walked it by? It was okay. All right, sorry, McGruff way. the crime dog just walked by, caught my attention. Get away. <laughs> crime
3: dog.
2: Um, that's question number one. McGruff. Uh, question uh, uh, number two. Um, Drills at um, specific issues that may be causing some some consternation, uh, either at the the planning uh, and zoning review or the council review. So some of the staff's observations, uh, frequently there's uh, conversations about the open space standards for multifamily projects. If that's the case, then I'd encourage the council to give staff some direction on what you'd like us to to review, and let's actually amend the code so that those standards are known up front to the developers. And I think. I think they'll be more than happy to, to comply with those and to work with staff to get those done. What, what gives them heartache and, and uh, uh, some financial concern is when they have to uh, address those during the process through conditions that are made at the table, whether, they, again, that be at P&Z or council. They'd rather address those up front in the design. So we talked about minimum open space standards. Sometimes it might be our building standards. So what does the building look like? What type of materials? uh, uh, What kind of, um, uh, you know, transparency needs to be built into a structure? So we have multifamily design standards. We have commercial design standards. And staff applies those during the kind of the tail end of the review. That's part of the administrative review process. After you do the rezoning, we will look at those design standards and apply them. So if you're seeing projects built and you're not happy with the way that they're looking or you notice some common flaws in buildings, then I'd encourage you to let, let us know and, and let us see if we can amend our design standards to address those. So again, it's known up front and not, it doesn't have to be done through conditions during the process. And then a question we've, we've, um, asked of you at the end, um, and, and it may be premature to, to put this on the table tonight, depending on how long this conversation goes, uh, but what are, what are some of your priorities for staff and where do some of these text amendments or zoning code changes on application materials fit in with some of your other priorities? And we mentioned a few on here. We still have, um, an affordable housing review. Uh, which, frankly, may or may or may not be in conflict with with um, some of the review as we get into talking about things like design standards. Um. We also have, uh, what I think will be stemming from your adoption of a, a climate resolution tonight. We need to examine our, our, uh, code and look at how we could enhance our code to meet, uh, the, the climate challenges ahead of us. So, uh, again, just helping us prioritize and letting us know what is your, wh- what your top priorities are for the planning staff would be, uh, would be very helpful. So with that, I think I'll turn it back over to you, Mayor, and, um, we have NDS staff here, and I'm, I'm happy to chime in if you need uh, any clarifications or questions answered.
0: All right. Well, we, can, we will do the best we can as these questions are difficult. I think the priorities the question in particular is a challenge for us. Uh, yeah, but uh, we'll do what we can and maybe not be completely definitive tonight, but uh, explore these topics. I want to present one topic that is has been of concern to me for quite a long time. And it relates to the questions that the staff asked though I don't know that it, what I'm going to say is, would answer the questions that the staff asked. So <clears throat> for a long time, my sense has been that zoning itself and following the processes involved in rezoning almost always gives insufficient attention to the to urban design or physical design at more at a scale larger than the individual building on a lot and therefore tends to be insensitive to context, the physical context uh, in which a proposed development or rezoning is located. <clears throat> One clear example of that, I believe, is the this had nothing to do with rezoning as such, but it has to do with the the multi-unit building at Washington and Van Buren that was so controversial, I don't know, five years ago and how the claim was, I think rightly so, it was just pretty badly out of scale with the neighborhood in which it was going to be embedded. So, how to deal with that kind of development becomes of uh, considerable interest. And uh, with regard to rezonings, then often one doesn't know what the buildings are going to be, actually, so one might not know whether they're out of scale with the surrounding context or not. But I believe we need to have a better urban design or, well, I'll just use that term, better urban design capacity built into our zoning code. So, and I think some people on the council, and Jeff as well, know that I distinguish between architecture, which pertains to individual buildings, uh, urban planning, which involves sort of, you know, land uses and transportation at larger scales, and urban design, which is more about the ensemble of buildings. It's more about what's going on, how will a particular proposal affect the block, How will it affect the neighborhood? And how will will it enhance the whole or not? I mean, those are urban design kinds of questions. So anyhow, I don't want to monopolize the situation here, but that's been a concern for me for quite a long time.
4: Well, Jim, sort of following up on that, I think one one of the issues uh, under this Heading of urban design that I think has always been challenging is where transitions occur. So where you have an interface of a residential area with the commercial district, which in a sense is, I think one of the aspects of the you know the Washington Van Buren project is the the, the failure of that building to gracefully make the transition between the College Hill neighborhood and the commercial area. Um, so I think looking at this interface, which I think probably applies in a lot of instances, but that's one example, uh, where having a better understanding of, of the impacts, uh, at these transitional zones because it seems that's where often, uh, you know, the design challenge occurs is how how do you, how do you make that, smoothly rather than abruptly um, in general I think one of the issues that I keep struggling with is is trying to understand and, and it it's sort of on the this notion of threshold projects what what the impacts of the project a project will be which I would I would agree with you in that sense as well paying close attention to how a project will impact the surrounding context is a very important piece of this. And and looking forward, as I was, um, you know, looking at that response by the city of Vancouver to its declaration of a climate crisis, uh, how issues related to climate and heat island effect could fall under that category, that, you know, there, there are questions regarding solar access, for example um that i think could be added to the list of urban design issues that we need to be paying more attention to uh so that the solar access rights of a, a property owner in the vicinity of a development project uh their solar access rights are preserved through that through the as as one considers the impacts of the project um we don't have in my view a very rigorous assessment process you know, I've looked at some other cities' development application uh, procedures. For example, San Francisco has a, a pretty rigorous sun shadow analysis for any building over four stories. They also have a, a very rigorous analysis triggered on um, on the impacts on winds if a building's over eight stories. So. In some respects, it sort of speaks to me of you know the, when we add to the complexity of a project, there, there needs to be a mindfulness of, of how the, the, the impacts of that project are going to be ratcheted up um, as a result of that intensity that will come with, with that development. Um, so I'll, I'll stop there for a minute. I don't want to
5: go any further at this point.
0: Yeah. How about the rest of you?
5: I'd be, I'll jump in here. Um, I I really want to key in on this concept of threshold. Um, As far as I'm concerned, the more routine the project is, the less we need to be involved in terms of scale. If we have concerns about, um, or or, obviously we need to have the input, but if we have concerns about the urban design, um, we need to communicate those on the front end as opposed to the back end. Um, I'll use one very specific demonstration in terms of what we do in riverfront crossings. I, I frankly like where we are at this point. If we have a taller building over a certain number of stories, the council has to weigh in on that. Um, one project that was not a zoning issue was, of course, the Kinnick uh, House. But I think that's another example of we had discussions in terms of the permitting process. If you essentially double the size, or there's some significant disruption in terms of what the ordinary flow is, we need to have those triggers in place. So whether it's council review or anything along those lines, and I and I think frankly, those sorts of thresholds. So in other words, these would be rare um, events that would not be occurring very frequently. Um, I don't think that we should be involved in terms of the granular detail unless we get these larger larger projects. Um, One project that comes to mind, I know we've talked about a lot of the frustrations that we've all had, but I think the Forest View project is a good example. We all knew that this was a monumental project of an, an enormous amount of complexity. And so I think because we knew that, the developer reached out to individual counselors. Uh, they reached out to individual m- members of the community. I think certainly one of the things I think we could have done better on is, is the neighbor, um, the good neighbor policy, and I think we're doing better on that. Um, but I think those that, that process, I think, is actually working pretty well. So to the extent that we need to have feedback to, to staff, I would encourage us to think about this threshold in terms of you know if there's a height, Issue that needs to trigger a, a review process. I think that might be helpful. If we're talking about a building that's much larger, you know, in terms of square footage, we might want to think about that as something. But the other thing, and this maybe would be more informal, if there is a significant concern expressed by the developer, um, I I guess, I don't know, at some point with our Augusta project, I don't know if that was pre, I don't know if we really had to rezone it, but the Augusta Place project, I believe we had a work session where the developer wasn't really sure whether we were going to move forward with it, and they just sort of showed us some general concept in a public setting. Um, Certainly that's not something they have to do. I mean, they can utilize the rezoning process, go through staff, but to the extent that there is that uncertainty on the back end, um, I at least think we, we should have, to the extent the developer wants to, one, to gauge council sentiment but two, to project it to the public so they're not surprised because it's not only the council, um, the public needs to be able to weigh in and you know they're part of this process too and I know the developers sometimes can be very frustrated um, with the process but of course citizens can too and residents can be as well when all of a sudden they're surprised and so I think the more we can sunshine, the more we can daylight these at the very earliest process I think the better and I think to a large degree we have been doing that, at least that's been my observation, I think Jeff has been able to sort of anticipate much more effectively uh, when he thinks there may be a very complicated issue, either in terms of the public or in council. You know, he can reach out to us individually. We can have work sessions. Um, So those are sort of my general observations. But I think um, specific um, triggering uh, for review and and work sessions could be something in those sort of rare circumstances. But otherwise, I think the extent that we want to have more design review, you know, again, I I like where we're going with riverfront crossings and Forum code. We're trying to embed some of our form preferences on the front end so we are more predictable, and so that what's also more predictable for us, too, and so we know what we're getting, and we don't just all of a sudden find ourselves with, you know, like a Kinnick 2.0, because I'm assuming that would not be authorized in the form-based code, but that's all I have to say. You
6: know, Rockley, I, with what you've said, I'll just kind of follow up with that. I think we, I do think we need to look at Threshold projects because I think if we, if we can define what those thresholds are, and I don't think we can do it tonight, but I think if we can define what those thresholds are, then hopefully that gets us to the point. Then in also looking at existing code, what kind of text amendments we need there, so that we can get away from um, what what developers probably feel Is micromanaging or whatever in terms of their design of buildings. And I'm thinking of multifamily buildings, okay? We've had a number of those that have either had difficulty making it through P and Z, um, or you know, difficulty here, or both, whatever. But if we could get to the point, of, if this is just a standard multi-story building that doesn't meet any threshold requirements, it's not, you know, at a specific gateway area, or it's not a, over some particular size, or whatever those thresholds are, that it's really cut and dried for that developer what the standards are for that kind of development. And that can be design, it can be the open space. We've had discussions about open space as well. But I think if we can define what those thresholds are and make the necessary adjustments to text so that we are comfortable, It frees up the developers. And I think that's what they're after. I think they feel like there is so much uncertainty now and so many conditional zoning agreements that are negotiated that if we can say, okay, if you're not meeting any one of these thresholds, here's your design standards. Here's your open space standards for your multifamily. And I know we have those now, but P&Z is not accepting those as enough. And P&Z is pushing them and getting conditional zoning agreements, which is... Again, as Jeff mentioned, also then in conflict with our effort for affordable housing. I mean, one of them that was done on the west side near Highway 218 that added three or four hundred thousand dollars to the construction of that building because of conditional zoning agreements. So, to me, we need to get more. Um, we need to be more definitive in what those requirements are. So, I think if we can identify thresholds where we think it needs more review fine but then if it doesn't meet one of those thresholds we've got it really cut and dry and P and Z is just gonna let it they're not gonna be looking for all the the um, elevations and all that sort of stuff it's pretty it's pretty cut and dried if they're gonna meet those standards
0: I think a key issue is whether or not a proposed development is out of scale with its context
6: and that's where a threshold, yeah. maybe,
0: is. Yeah, yeah. So the analysis we went through with regard to the Lusk Avenue house, uh, the one we did uh, about six months ago or thereabouts, uh, presents a good model, it seems to me, because it's all about comparing the mass, scale, I don't know, height, et cetera, square footage of that building relative to other um New infill developments in comparable neighborhoods, and it really stood out. That that was the thing that struck me, and I, uh, I think it did you all as well. So, if if there would, if there's some way we could have thresholds, more than one threshold, because it's not just height, it's yeah, just square, square footage. footage yeah. uh, if we could have more than one threshold, that is about that focuses on the difference between the whatever building or buildings would be proposed as part of a rezoning relative to the context in which that building or buildings would go, I think that would go a long way.
5: And Jim, just quick footnote to that, I think that also illustrates the perils of not having any discretion at all. Of course, again, that was not a rezoning, um, but you know, ultimately we did not have the regulatory tools in that context, right. so um, we can't be um, well, you know, the, uh, we can't overcorrect here, I guess is what I'm getting at. That was something we didn't foresee, and we just didn't have the regulatory tools to be able to do that.
3: I appreciate the conversation happening, uh, especially with staff um, really coming in and saying, hey, we need you to, you know, uh, help us here and give us some direction. I think they did a great job of laying a lot of groundwork for us. Um, one of the things that I would... Definitely, like to mention is that we don't want to get, you know, too specific um, to allow, you know, creativity and that type of stuff. Of course, that's where conditioning, you know, um, zoning come in and all the, that other stuff. But um, I do believe that if we can figure out in the beginning how to really get away from some of these bonuses that we, you know, that we have, if we can have it up up front like this is what we want this is the max square footage the max you know height Um, because then that for developers just decrease um, a lot of problems as well as for our citizens or residents within our community um, that can be a part of that conversation up front so that once the development starts to happen everybody's on the same page and so from my perspective, you know when we're going through this process, if we can kind of keep that in mind, knowing what our limits will be and really setting that up, but there's also that part of you know um, creativity and allowing people to come and present to us you know some of their thoughts and ideas and if we're too restrictive, then that could be a, a bad thing but um, from my perspective, I think um, You know, definitely, you know, threshold projects, all that sounds good. Um, But if we can, even from the beginning, really try to figure out what do we, what, what do our community want? And from the beginning, set up those square footage, height bonuses, all this other stuff from the beginning as much as we can. Yeah, you mentioned height bonuses. So,
0: uh, uh, Uh,
3: well, getting away from height bonuses. Well, uh,
0: uh, here's what I want to here's what I want to say. They they appear in riverfront crossings for the form-based code, right? I mean, that's one key place, but not just there. There are other height bonuses that are permissible with regard to certain kinds of developments or rezonings. I'm not sure exactly which. I've never been clear about that, but they're they exist. So. If you mean we should get rid of height bonuses full stop, uh, that's a big step. Maybe we should do it. I, I'm, I'm not advocating, but uh, you know, maybe we should do it. What I do believe is uh, a reasonable thing to do is look carefully at the height bonuses we currently offer in the Riverfront Crossings District. And my recollection is that Tony uh, Perez drew attention that for some of the sub-districts in riverfront crossings. Uh, he, he did not express any objection to two-story height bonuses f- for several of the sub-districts, but he, he did w- worry about much larger height bonuses in some sub-districts. So uh, yeah, so I, I just wanted... To
3: and, and a part of what he stated there was you know, we have on the back end, you can get these high bonuses. And what he stated was, put it up front that this is the max size of the building that you can have. And then hopefully people will build, you know, you know, some will build up under that, but they would know that this is the max. And so I think that's my point is, um, you know, we start with the six stories and then you say you can get eight and then you can go up to whatever. Um, what Tony said was start with the whatever, the max, and then, you know, go from there. But it's a major undertaking, a uh, change in the thought process for the city. And I'm not suggesting that we need to do this, do this, do this, but I do know that we need to have the conversation and consider it.
0: What do the rest of you think about any aspect having to do, anything having to do with this general topic of...
7: I wonder, haven't uh, reviewed uh, this very much, but I think see, I don't know. For somehow I like case by case basis, so we can implement like our value. But this is, uh, and also I understand that the staff need to have consistent message to apply for the people who apply. It, uh, you know, in terms of what is required at the application stage and various application type. Yeah, I understand that, but. Uh, Talking about the height bonus, for example, I think that's supposed to be as it is, height bonus all the time, so we can have a room to implement our value mm-hmm. for that building. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a lot of things, standards for every building. That's fine, threshold. But I really still agree that to have high bonus because this is like kind of room where the council can come and. Laser value if we need affordable housing, if we need like certain things from the developer uh, to do, or if we need the building to look like the way that maybe blend with the rest of the area, or you know, just like room for us to lay in and talk about something. But um, with you, we need to do a threshold project. But also, this I don't think something can be just done like that. We need to do our homework and come back and talk about this. Because we have to go to specific projects and see what we want to see, when what we want to like, really implement, and make it part of the code and come back. I agree with Susan when she said that.
8: Thank you. Susan also mentioned micromanaging. And, and I think I'm, I'm recalling that there was one project, I think it was on the original on the South Gilbert, where P&Z was nitpicking right down to what kind of playground equipment they were going to have or should have in the green space. And I think that's going just a little bit too far. I, I don't think, uh, as far as a standard, uh, uh, that's not one of the cut and dry standards that, that needs to be in there. But having the green space uh, should be. And we should be more definitive about uh, what we require for that and, and not uh, pass that off as something that that they could uh, do something else and not require the green space. Um, and Rockney mentioned uh, triggers. And I think one, since we've been so involved in the environmental discussions, that the environmental impact on, on the building, uh, what, what it has on its, the surrounding area, that, that should be one of the triggers. That should be, be important, something we should keep in mind.
5: I'm wondering in terms of a takeaway, Jim, is that if we do have an agreement that there should be these sort of threshold sort of... Um quantitative thresholds that then the marching orders of staff would be, um, you know, come back with their own expertise and maybe propose some thresholds to us um, that we could maybe have further discussion on. And they may just say, hey, certain parts of town, it's not going to make sense at all. Mm -hmm. Um, Other parts, they may be able to come back with very specific recommendations as a starting point, uh, much in the same way we did with, like, affordable housing at TIFF. We said, hey, we'd like more affordable housing. And then Doug Boothroy comes back with a very very specific proposal based upon their own expertise. Um, So both as to height and square footage.
0: That that sounds like a pretty reasonable idea to me, and I'd be curious to know how Jeff responds from a staff point of view. Uh, But I'm thinking of a few other things. I hope I can keep track of what I have in mind here. One is, in the Riverfront Crossings District or any other area that has a form-based code, I think we got to get to a position where the form-based code determines... should determine the basics of the architectural design for any proposed building, and we shouldn't be nitpicking that. Uh, So I'm hopeful we'll get to that point. Another thing I think about is uh, a small building, um, and here I'm thinking about... Oh, what is it? um, Out... Uh, out Muscatine Avenue near First Avenue, where we were considering a rezoning for one one specific building, and and the commission wanted to look at renderings. I think for that building, I, I, I think that such such a, an instance like that does not <clears throat> rise to the level of requiring uh, rigorous uh, aesthetic or um, uh, architectural analysis. So I th- that that's where we need a clear. Mm-hmm. set of criteria for establishing a threshold that does require more careful analysis. Yeah, and there's one <coughs> other point that I wanted to make, but I knew I was going to forget it, so that maybe it'll come up to me in a second. A, a couple of things I would add would be,
4: uh, and maybe I'm jumping a little bit into question two here, but on the on the questions of um, related to open space requirements, it it, it really became clear to me in looking at how the open space was uh, provided for the uh, uh, Forest View project that the, the outcomes um, with respect to the usable, you know, the usability of that open space that was provided uh, was did not reach a, a threshold in terms of its usability. You know, they they, they, they tended to be uh, areas that were, th- the only way I, c- I can try to describe it would be what was left after the building and the parking lot requirements had been established. And then you had this small piece uh, of land um, of a shape and location where, you know, as someone who designed public outdoors usable spaces, really didn't have much to, to build on because of its location and configuration. So it seems to me that some some better criteria need to be developed. Maybe it's, it's more on the uh, policies and procedures as to how one evaluates how that usable open space is developed so that it's more integral to the project rather than what's left after the parking and building requirements have been determined. Yeah, I, I personally agree, and that's part of what I mean by urban design. Yeah, it's kind of a, uh, so, there, so there's that. And uh, in terms of site development, uh, in a similar way, I felt Forest View revealed to me looking forward in terms of questions, uh, particularly as it relates to stormwater runoff, and heat island effect that we needed to revisit our parking lot requirements so that the, uh, those lots have, um, essentially better canopy cover, um, both for stormwater detention and, uh, reducing the heat island effect that w- that's generated by these large, um, paved areas, um, and I think, you know, in my short looking online, there are lots of best practices that i found in terms of cities that have uh, minimum lot coverage when the trees are at maturity, for example, um, roughly in the 50% range. So I think there are ways that will ways that we'll address that issue, and I, I would argue make for a better project. You know, I, I'd like to think these things are not onerous, um, but in terms of the use of the building, that, you know, when you're vehicles are parked in that lot, they're, you know, <laughs> um, they're going to be protected from these weather extremes, uh, through the day whenever they're parked there. So, um, I think there are opportunities to, to address and improve on the minimum open space and development standards, uh, as we move forward.
5: One other issue that may be a good idea is, right now, it's my understanding, good neighbor is not required. Is that correct? Correct. Um, have we thought about making that mandatory? And secondly, related to that, um, I know a lot of times residents will come in and say, I wasn't notified. Sometimes that means they just weren't paying attention and staff did everything they could to sort of notify people. But sometimes that's a function of what the sort of the mandatory notification zone is. Correct me if I'm wrong, there's a certain square footage. So I think we also might want to think about expanding that in terms of notification. Because I always sort of view, um, to some degree, when we have a group out in the audience, not always, but to some degree, if they're all mad at us and they're all saying that they were surprised, I think we have to look at ourselves and say, "Hey, was there?" It's sort of it's a, it's a failure in some respects. Um, and I think the more open we've been, the more you know, wider the notification is, and then we don't get the, the pushback at the podium. I think that's successful. So I think the quieter the better in the most cases. And I think the more we have, in know in that one project you did not support in the South District, you weren't necessarily against the project. Project, you were concerned that the residents hadn't been notified or engaged enough. And I think they did have a uh, good neighbor policy, but it wasn't wasn't fully implemented. So I think that may be something else that we could t- tweak sort of structurally. Um, and I think the more engagement there is, the less likely we're to have someone at the po- podium mad at us or mad at Jeff.
6: I think listening to what people have said, it, it seems to me like we're in agreement... and and I don't know if staff feels like they have anywhere near enough (laughs) guidance from us at this point, but maybe for staff to come back with some ideas and more recommendations on what those thresholds might be. And then (coughs) I would kind of guess that just from some of the P&Z stuff that's gone through over the last 12 months, you'd probably have some pretty good ideas of where some of that zoning text needs to be maybe cleaned up in terms of multifamily units and stuff and design standards and open space that if they don't meet the threshold, folks you're not getting a CZA out of the developer. I mean, they've they've met the threshold and they ought to be able to get through without jumping through a lot of extra hoops regardless of who's sitting on P and Z. I mean, I and if they can't, then they should feel comfortable coming to the council, and we should approve it. I mean, that's the whole idea of this, is trying to make it easier for them to know exactly what those standards are. And if they've met those standards, then it should be kind of a slam dunk. Now, and what I'm saying, I see you kind of shaking no, or no, nodding your head, But I'm not disagreeing. But I agree that we've also talked about some things in terms of you know, the urban design and how it fits in with the context and, and those kinds of things that may add more text changes than what we've really discussed before. So I
0: don't... I, I, I was you, sort of shaking my head, that. but not in disagreement yeah. with you. I, I think it would be good to have... <clears throat> for developers to have greater assurance that mm-hmm. projects can move ahead and, and if, if they meet the criteria and that kind of thing. Uh, but I think they also the projects also need to have some predictability for people who live in the general area. So that's where this good neighbor policy could come to bear. So I wonder if a, 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 a good neighbor, um, a re- we could require good neighbor meetings when in those threshold kinds of situations. Yeah. Yeah, so that's part of what I think. And, and I think also that a, a key part of what we need to be thinking about has to do with transitions. So and, and when I use that word, I'm thinking about the Uh, the development on south on the south Gilbert Street down by McAllister, the one you just referred to, uh, the neighbors were objecting mainly because the transition was so abrupt between the existing single family housing and then just to the left of a sort of a prairie ravine (laughs) sort of, uh, there would be apartment buildings. So And uh, uh, some of us expressed a desire to see missing middle housing in that development so that the transition could actually be accomplished deftly. So if we could not just identify threshold conditions, but also uh, ways to enhance the the transition between proposed projects and uh, the existing context, I think that would be helpful. Yeah, i just quickly try to build on that because I think
4: part of what I think we're trying to address is what the expectation of existing residents will be with a project. And um, I think particularly with the plan development overlay process, you know, and particularly PDOs which are influenced by natural areas which can constrict the development area, that, uh, once the project begins considering and applying building types that would not normally be allowed in the underlying zone, say if you have a RS5 or an RS8, and, um, it becomes a PDO, um, you know, we've seen projects in various locations in the city where, uh, with, even with the underlying zone being RS8, that buildings are proposed that are three stories and 200 feet long kind of expressions of building size, which I think, you know, to anyone living out there is, is shocking because, you know, if they, they you know, we, we get responses from people, residents, who are familiar with zoning. They know what RS5, they know what RS8 is. And so I think they, they do have a reasonable expectation that the development that would occur around them um, would be consistent with that zoning, and so, and I don't I don't mean to suggest that it's not possible to design with those buildings, larger buildings than would be allowed under the underlying zoning, but I think it does raise questions about expectations, and how, as to use Jim's term, we deftly uh,
0: respond to the design challenge. That's a legal term, incidentally, oh, deftly. I <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> So, uh, Jeff, I wonder if you or anybody in NDS staff, and or Danielle or Tracy, you know, would like to ask us questions based on what you've heard us saying up here? Would, that, would it be helpful to have that kind of dialogue? Uh, I'm
2: comfortable, but I, I want to give Ann, Danielle, Tracy a chance to get any clarifications that you may need. It, it's probably going to be a process where we're back and forth a few times. Mm-hmm. You good? Yes, I'm not we're comfortable.
6: We're just asking we're for magic, him, that's
2: all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, I guess some of my takeaways, we can definitely develop thresholds. I think we're all in agreement that the multifamily open space. I'm not hearing a whole lot of concerns on the commercial side of things. Um, it tends to be multifamily. I uh, hear in transition, context. Um, those are all things that we can work on. If there are commercial issues uh, or, or issues you've identified with commercial rezonings or, or buildings, let us know because that's a whole nother.
0: Separate. Only at edges. I mean, I can imagine a situation where a commercial zone abuts a residential Correct. zone, and you got a transitional edge problem. Correct. Yeah. Okay.
6: I think I'll just add one comment. I think I think the transitions sometimes are difficult, um, and like John, because of expectations. But also, I think sometimes those expectations aren't reasonable. And that's where I think we have a challenge as a city and as we develop code. I mean, when I look at that one, that's the one closest. We've looked at two on South Gilbert, but the one closest to McAllister, where they were going to have single family homes, and they were going to have townhouses. And then further to the north, I think there was going to be apartment buildings, if I'm right. And as I recall at the time, the neighbors in there on Wagon Wheel and, and that area, they were not at all happy about that development because they made comments about who was going to live there. I mean, low-income housing is what they were saying, and these houses were going to be worth a whole lot less than theirs, and they were concerned. And really, when you looked at that, it went from single-family to townhouses to apartment buildings. So from my perspective... That was a very reasonable transition from a totally single-family neighborhood. So I, I just raise that point because what one person says is not a reasonable transition, and maybe specifically because they live in the neighborhood, is not what somebody with a more objective and more clinical or you know urban design perspective would say would agree, would necessarily agree with them that that's not a reasonable transition. So I think that's gonna be, can be a challenge as we move forward.
0: We haven't addressed the third question at all. You want us to try to
2: dive into it? Well, I don't, I don't know if we're there quite yet. I think we probably need to get you some more information and then let you decide.
0: That sounds I, good. I, I'd like to ask maybe three questions that I have with regard to setting priorities. So I, I think it's pretty difficult to answer that in the abstract. So then I find myself wondering how long would it take to complete each of the actions, like uh, identifying barriers to affordable housing, identifying amendments to the zoning code and uh, that would help meet climate action goals, and so on. How long would each of those take? Uh, I, don't answer the question. I mean, it's just... I I find it hard to answer the priorities question without having some sense of how long it's going to take to do the various things. And then likewise, um, what might interrupt or delay the staff's efforts? I can easily imagine some big project coming along and suddenly Danielle or whoever uh, has to spend (laughs) a month or whatever working on that project instead of these other things. Uh, and then I'm wondering if there are any specific prosal, proposals in the already in the works that would justify immediate action on any of those possible priority areas. So well, you don't have to answer any of those questions, but those come to my mind. OK, well, we're, we're off, anyhow, with <laughs> initiating a discussion. That's a good thing. Yeah. Shall we move on? Okay. So, the next topic would be clarification of agenda items. Oh. And I know there's at least one I want to bring up having to do with deer management, which is item 17, the deer management plan that we are proposing to adopt. So, my question... You're, you're kind of puzzled, Jeff. Do I have, do I have the wrong number? No, I'm this? just right. looking for it here. Okay. Sorry. So my question is this. When I read the text of the deer management plan, I found myself wondering, will property owners need to provide permission to use their property for the bow hunting? I don't think the text is clear about that. Yes. Okay, so it might be worthwhile looking, again, at the text uh, when you get a chance. It, it's very clear at the start, but that seems to apply only to the sharpshooting. If I read it correctly, I'm not saying I really did, but...
7: I don't have it up in front of me, but... Yeah.
2: Yeah, okay. it, not it doesn't, it doesn't specify what properties will be used or... It just says that we have to work in cooperation with the with the DNR to, to establish those boundaries. And, and, of course, we expect the council to have to sign off on whatever parameters we develop. So that'll be something we'll have to work on this fall and winter. But, but absolutely, we, we would want the property owner's permission and require that.
6: Uh, yeah, I think you couldn't be there without... Right.
2: And and there may be people that want to allow hunting on their property, and we don't want to allow it on their property. So it kind of works both ways, right? We, we have to define where we want it, and there has to be property owners within that area. Assuming there's some private, we may target all public grounds, too. We haven't really gone through that analysis, and we probably need to sit down with White Buffalo and have some of those conversations about the best places, um, or, or kind of where the deer are located. Uh, and the DNR will have some some advice for us, too. But I would say those details are yet to come. But absolutely, we won't force hunting on a property owner.
0: Okay. Any other questions about agenda items?
3: I had a question about 6E. And that's the tree and stump removal service contract. Um, so the initial cost was 17000 Is this related to the ash trees, the big difference in the... In the cost because it's a $113,000 difference.
9: Hi, Julie Seidel Johnson, Parks and Rec Director. Related to two things. First of all, um, over the last year, we've had a couple big windstorms that have knocked down a lot of large trees that added costs we weren't
7: expecting, but the largest bulk is due to emerald ash borer, yes.
3: Okay. And how much over $150,000 are you anticipating because from 17 to... 131 is already significant. Yeah, it
9: is very significant, and I don't have a number, an exact number, but it will continue to rise. Um, I mean, it'll be like a bell curve. We'll have a few more years where we have many, many more coming out because of that, and then it will um, cut back again after that. So I don't have an exact number, though.
2: Okay. And just to clarify, we should have we should have clarified this better in, in the report. But if you look at the resolution itself, it notes that the contract with total. Cr- Total tree care of Iowa City was actually ninety-five thousand. Yeah. So, so oftentimes, what we'll do is it'll be it'll be a multi-year contract. We may only do you know twenty-five in a given year, but we'll do a, a larger contract with these companies uh, through an RFP process. So the jump's not actually from seventeen to one hundred and fifty. It's actually the the award was from ninety-five, which falls under my authority to spend. And as you get to one hundred and fifty, that's when your authority to spend is required. So. It's one of those awkward situations in which we didn't think the spending threshold was going to reach your level, but due to what Julie just mentioned, the contract had to grow to where it required. So we're mid-contract, and we need we need your approval to move move
0: that number up. Thank you. Any other agenda items? I wanted to ask about uh, on the correspondence
4: 8G the updates on Blackhawk Mini Park. Uh, the, there was a shade structures that were mm-hmm. illustrated. Uh, and I, I'm not sure if anyone else on council was aware of that, but I wasn't um, aware of it. I was just wanted to better understand the, the story behind that.
2: So it started with the well, the Washington Streetscape project. Um, in order to help um, continue to drive people downtown during that disruptive process or different disruptive project, we contracted with the Downtown District on placemaking activities downtown. And uh, I'm not recalling exactly what they used those funds for the first year. And then as we got into the pedmall Mall project, we decided to continue it because we found that it was successful. Matter of fact, I, th- I think the first year they did more events. They had a rock climbing wall. They did paddle boarding. They did things of that nature to get people downtown. Um, Last year, they transitioned to the Prairie House. Remember the Prairie House structure that was built downtown, um, and they might have also done a few smaller events. Um, this year is what, what Betsy's memo is detailing is what their efforts are, are are looking at this year. And this year, they wanted to focus more on the seating, which is the picnic tables that you see down there now that are painted the, the bright colors. Uh, they've they've introduced some planter boxes and, and are and are maintaining those planter boxes to try to create a. a, a sense, um, a, a different sense of place down there. And then the shade structure is one more component to that. Obviously, that's one thing that that area is is lacking at times is is shade. Um, and instead of doing a traditional umbrella, they wanted to do something a little bit more artistic. So I think they worked with the local um, architecture firm and developed, uh...
4: So, so does that replace... I remember there was a structure proposed for the black. Box.
2: This is a temporary installation. Uh, so it, it could come back, but it's it's not meant to be a permanent installation, much like the Prairie House or those picnic right. tables. So,
4: so there. what is the status of that shade structure that? We, we did
2: not, ac- that was an alternate on the uh-huh. bid, and we did not accept that. So there, okay. there are no plans to bring that right. back. It's not in the CIP right now. The, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, but the foundations are installed. So if we want to go back in and do it, the foundations are there to put that shade structure on, but we do not have the funding and the budget to do that. Okay.
8: That's like, like, John, I was confused on that, too, because I, I thought uh, that the, the footings were already in place. And then to see these more leaf-like sort of umbrella yeah. uh, rather than, than the box structure, like the prairie house, I, I was confused by that. And too.
2: These won't require footings. These aren't of a right. size and scale to, to require any disruption underground. Again, they're working off of $25,000 budget, so that's where we get the picnic tables. I think it's
4: a
0: good experiment, I'm,
4: I'm, clearly, pleased, the lack of I'm pleased with the direction. Thing. I just yeah. Yeah. was confused, just confused yeah. yep. how it related to the, what I understood to be the direction there.
10: OK, any other agenda items? Uh, let's see, I had a couple questions. Uh, first was on item 14 for um, the bikes, e-bikes, e-scooters, and e-skateboards uh, ordinance amendments. Um, I guess, how does this ordinance relate to the University of Iowa campus moratorium on e-scooters as well as um, what pr- provisions exist in the code for uh, these vendors such as, like, Lime or Uber?
1: Do to- Nagelgam, Transportation Services. And to your first question, um, this will... Legally enable e-scooters to operate within the city of Iowa City. Um, it's the university's moratorium. I guess doesn't necessarily have a bearing on whether we are able to legally enable them. But they, this will legally enable them to operate on the city public right-of-way.
10: Mm-hmm.
1: And could you repeat your second part of your question?
10: Um, I guess what provisions it has for like regulating vendors. Um, I guess I'm, I'm thinking the practice where like sometimes they'll just come in the middle of the night and like dump a bunch of scooters on the ground and just leave.
1: This specific ordinance doesn't address that. It's more about the operation of the vehicles and whether they're legally enabled and um, on our roadways. So this doesn't address that specifically. But um, to your point, we are in the final stages of um, negotiating a contract with, uh, with an e-bike vendor for the city of Iowa City, um, and which we hope to have out on the streets this fall. So we're th- probably within days of having a contract signed. And that will be e-bikes, which have been enabled by this ordinance and a previous ordinance that came before you a few months back. We've expanded the ordinance um, in, in the version you see in front of you to um to include all classes of e-bikes. There's three manufacturer classes and we want to make sure they're all included. All
2: right, thank you. I could clarify real quick um on the campus, what the university does with their on their campus is their decision. So this has no bearing on the walkways through the Pentecrest or other areas on campus that they, they govern those. Mm-hmm.
10: Yeah. And then the second one was for um, item 18 on the transit study consultant agreement. Um, Does the agreement set specific dates for the beginning and conclusion of the study, or is that still um, TBD?
1: We will um, negotiate a start date um, as soon as we have a a signed contract with with the vendor, with the consultant team. Uh, We expect that the uh, project will kick off within the next few weeks, and then it will begin in earnest. The actual study will begin um, upon the start of the university session and the school district session. So um, it's going to take the better part of the next year to complete, um, but uh, yeah, we're looking forward to um, getting started and getting those dates uh, down. But those are probably the closest general estimates I can give you right now.
10: Right, awesome.
0: Thank you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Any other agenda items? Okay, should we turn to the information packets, July 18? And as you're looking, I note that we have five items at the... Staff would ideally like to get council decisions about, and they are all on the August 1st information packet. All
7: right, did it.
0: Okay, so um, the July 25th packet, anything there? I had a
6: comment on one of these. Oh, I think on the July 25th packet. So the um, the letter that came in from the residents who lived next to the area, um, uh, that Midiam just got a special exception for. Um, and there's a letter from Sue in the packet. We had miscalculated on that reconsideration issue. Um, so essentially, we are taking their request as a request for reconsideration, and we are setting um, up an, a meeting with the Board of Adjustment um, to see if they wanna make a motion to reconsider. So I just wanted to let you know that.
0: Uh, and it's completely out of our hands because it's the Board of Adjustment. It is, but
8: I just wanted to clarify that.
0: Yeah. Okie doke. Shall we turn to the August first packet? Okay, so why don't we just uh, start with the first uh, IP number four? the memo from the city manager uh, concerning Blackbird Investments and the Forest View Tenants Association's request for financial incentives regarding the new housing that will be built out there.
7: I was trying to request that to defer this item to next time, if you can.
0: Uh, Could you just explain why?
7: I just think we... We need to do more investigation and talk to more people about this. And some people, they have a lot of questions. And we need to collect some information before we can. And some people, they want to come and present here about this. And maybe they can do it during uh, public comment. And after that, maybe we can have a decision about this.
1: Is
5: that a motion?
7: Well, let's
8: see if... I, I haven't put a motion yet, but well, I'm but just there's asking. Not
0: gonna, there's not going to be a motion as such. Yeah. Okay. I, um.
8: I would agree with Mazzi here, because it seemed like we didn't have a lot of information as far as where this request was coming from. I I've all along, from day one, been very supportive of this Forest V project, uh, but this raised some other concerns as far as... Um, the request for public ownership of the green space uh, and then uh, larger homes and $1.2 million, that's a lot. And how many of those homes need to be larger? Do they all need to be larger? So it seems like there's a lot more questions than answers. So I'd I'd appreciate more and and, uh, input from the actual residents, the potential residents.
0: That's the way it seemed to me as well. So no no time crunch on my end. Uh, Without objection, then we'll... Defer discussion about this to, uh, I guess, our next meeting on the 20th. We'll just put it in the following packet. Yeah.
7: Yes, please. Thank you.
0: All right, the next one has to do with <clears throat> IP number five, a memo from NDS, Neighborhood Development Services. From Tracy Haichu, the director, concerning the strategic plan item a review of the Affordable Housing Action Plan and new strategies. Tracy, do you want to guide us through this?
9: Hi, Tracy Haishu with Neighborhood Development Services. So there is a memo on your July 29th, well, dated July 29th. The memo was to update you on our affordable housing action steps, those 15 action steps for affordable housing, where we were at with those. So the memo starts off just giving an update on those steps. Basically, we're done with 13 out of the 15. We're working on the last two. One was the tax exemption committee um, that goes to HCDC for review. Um, I think you've seen the recommendation. HCDC's going to comment. It'll come back to you probably late August, early September. And then the other item is reviewing code changes to to encourage affordable housing or to to make the cost lower. After the memo, there's discussion about um, with these action steps, certain time has to go by so we can evaluate. Um, one of them is like the form-based code. We won't approve farm form-based code until 2020. Others were to enable certain things to happen like through TIF to build affordable housing. Those will take could take multiple years for us to find out what's an effective, viable tool and what produces the most affordable housing for the targeted groups that you want to see. So just just remember that this is a long-range plan. You're not going to see always immediate results just because affordable housing, I mean, by the time you assemble the parcels, find your financing, apply for programs, build it, lease it. Just take some time. Um, In the memo, I also talked about the importance of the private sector, that we subsidize less than 10% of the private market. So supply issues are important. So 90% of our rental market is unsubsidized. So working with the private sector to increase supply um, will assist with our affordable housing goals. Then the rest of the memo talks about a recommended programming change. This memo was meant to talk with the funds that we're allocated for fiscal year 20, what should be the focus, and what we would recommend after... Since we've had this action plan since 2016, based on the results and what we've seen, what would we change? And so um, we looked at the affordable housing fund we are recommending that right now we give 50% to the Housing Trust Fund to allocate. We're increasing, or well, we recommend increasing that by another 200000 Right now, the Housing Development Commission reviews LIHTC projects, low-income housing tax credit projects. We're basically hoping to combine that into one body that reviews. They're, they're usually large projects. They're very complex. Um, the Housing Trust Fund Board is, has a lot of expertise. They review complex projects. It also simplifies when a project needs more money or needs to be reviewed again. One body is reviewing that. We've already combined our review. Our allocation process was the Housing Trust Fund. This would just simplify. So we would allocate $700,000 to the Housing Trust Fund with the caveat that if the IFA or the Iowa Finance Authority changes their allocation plan where they give more points or you score better by getting a direct city contribution, we would take that twenty, that $200,000 back and we'd, we'd directly allocate that. Um, another app. Another one was um, we dedicate 75,000 to a dedicated opportunity fund. Um, this means this includes our we um, can see where our land banking funds are. We'd reallocate the land banking funds. Um, we'd probably still give money land banking, but we'd be more flexible how we use that money. So 70, 7.5% would go to that opportunity fund. That would be if we have collaborations that we don't know about, if they come up, we would use those funds. Um, we have approximately 800000 in the fund right now. We're acquiring a property. It's on your agenda later tonight. After we allocate those funds, we have about 600000 remaining. So we'd still have those funds in, this, in that pool. This would just be added to it. We'd also have 7.5% to the city's Healthy Homes program. Um, we pr- we give 50,000. We we apply through the Housing Trust Fund. Right now, we would we want to stress improving our existing housing stocks to make it healthier. And so, instead of applying every year to get it, we would just we would just internally allocate it, and that gives a that way the money that we give to the Housing Trust Fund is unencumbered. They don't have to. They don't have to look through the city applying for their own funds that we give them, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, we'd also we use those funds if we don't use them in direct um, healthy homes applications. If we're doing CDBG home grip and one of the owners has any type of um, impairment, such as COPD, asthma, we could invest those funds there, too, to increase the amount of funds that we're doing <coughs> to improve the indoor air quality of that unit. Um, we've dedicated 10% to, um, security deposits that, well, sorry, 30,000 would capitalize the landlord risk mitigation fund that there's a nonprofit agency in Iowa City working on that right now to make it easier to, um, to give some assurances to landlords who rent to people that might have some difficult, um, difficult things in their past that make it, uh, like, um criminal history, low credit score, different things that might make it harder to rent to that person. So it gives some security to that landlord about either lost rent or damages. And then 70000 dedicated to a security deposit. Um, For years, we've heard how difficult it is to get into housing. This would provide a security deposit. We'd take an RFP out to the local nonprofits. They would apply. We'd provide funds to them to run programs. Um, There's a couple nonprofits that I know already have this program. We'd see if we could expand that use in Iowa City to get people into housing. Another large change, well, not a large change. None of these are huge changes. It's what we're doing now. We're just focusing on existing housing stock and making that housing stock healthier, basically. Um, Also, we look at our CDBG home, how we're spending those funds. What we want to do is to encourage applicants that are either getting a grant or low interest loan, how they could rent to people lower than that fair market rent. Because, to be honest, there's parts of town where the fair market rent is higher than market rate. And so, we want to subsidize housing in that you keep a lower rent. So we're increasing the availability of affordable housing to people at lower it, ends of the income spectrum. Um, one is just administrative change regarding our equity that's required in our rehab program for emergencies. So if you run out of heat in the winter, your water heater breaks, Right now, we look at the equity to make sure that our loan's covered. And if you don't have it, we can't help you. So we would waive the equity requirement. We'd still put a mortgage on the property and recover what we could in case of default. But that way, we can assist people when they're having crisis um, and have healthier housing. We're also putting a focus on unless subsidizing new construction is expensive. Subsidizing new construction targeting people below 40, 30% of median income is very high. So unless we have other community resources, such as a LIHTC, you know, low-income housing tax credit, or state funds, we're going to concentrate on rehab and um, acquisition. So moving away from new construction, unless we have another source of funding helping us from the state, from the federal government, um, that's one of the changes. And I, I believe the last change is... Oh, right now, the housing trust fund, we allocate money to them annually. What we would do is, and it, they have to go through the aid agency process, which is a competitive process. They're never quite sure what they're going to get funded each year. Um, with that funds, we'd take a 5%, we would just, out of the funds that we're allocating them, it would just be 5% for administration, and we would just enter an agreement, so they would know each year that they're going to get an administrative fee, and they're coming out of that aid agency money, or that pot of funds. So those were the major changes. And I, I'm here for any questions.
5: The only question I have is you had talked about a change moving um, decision-making authority away from HCDC to the Housing Trust Fund for, like, a level of review. Could you elaborate oh. a little bit more on that?
9: That's only for tech applications. Okay. The only thing that we would be changing, HCDC would still be reviewing all the CDBG and home projects. Okay. It's just before that portion that we give to the Housing Trust Fund, or right now we keep two... 20% of the affordable housing fund and we dedicate it to a tech project. It only can be used for a tech project. So we would just send that directly to the Housing Trust Fund and then they, their board would make those recommendations and they would allocate money out. Because to be honest, we're funding the same project. So um, when the Housing Trust Fund funds a tech project, we're also typically funding it with CDBG home funds too. So just simplifying the process and having it under one body.
2: So from, if you think about Delray and you think about the, the project that's under construction on Sand Road, mm-hmm. or from Sand developers on Herbert Hoover, um, Rochester extended, um, those developers went to the housing trust fund and got money, and then they came and they went through the, the city CDBG process through HCDC and then through council to get funding as well. So it's, and, and if you think about the the funds that the trust funds using to, to award to those they're just using the money that we're giving them to award so the developers a sense in a sense applying for city funds through two different avenues and it just didn't make a whole lot of sense to us and and what we found is that the review criteria the the trust fund and Simon's on the the trust fund board so he probably wants to comment on that but um, you know, the, the trust fund and then through the C, uh, city staff and, and CD, and I'm sorry, HCDC and council, we're not necessarily um, uh, comparing notes with the trust funds on those awards, too. So we think it makes sense that one body is looking at the complete financial picture and making that award. Uh, we recommend that be the, the trust fund uh, because they do the lion's share of that, that work um, re- regionally. But if it's not them, I, I think we need to figure out a better process than what we have right now.
5: Has HCDC weighed in on this? No, the,
2: the memo came out on Thursday and came directly to council. And
11: currently, through the state IFA process for how they score projects, you get points for a housing trust fund allocating dollars, but you don't for the city. So, for instance, we had a project that wasn't approved initially that would have been had those dollars gone through the trust fund and not come directly from the city. So it makes it more likely that those projects will move forward.
7: You mean that 20% that we've been allocated to the LITEC project, now we give it to the house trust fund, which is going to be equal to 200, right? it's the same amount of money, whether we yeah, provide but it or... instead of we process it, we give it to them, and they give it to them, and they don't apply to us. Yes. Correct. But when they come here and ask for that money, we as a council, we ask them for something to do. Like, we implement our value at that time. You know? Each time they came here and asked for that, we request something else. But I'm not sure if the House of Trust Fund, they're going to do the same thing. Because they have like set of requirement and it will be applied to everyone.
11: Uh, the tech projects generally meet the requirements by the state. Uh, we haven't put additional, with the city dollars, uh, requirements on those. We try and make sure that they maximize the points to make sure that they get approved for funding through the state. And those point scoring systems are very defined by IFA. So when you see the 30% AMI, 60, all those numbers, those are to maximize the likelihood that the project gets approved from IFA. We had a project that didn't get built because the dollars came from the city and not from the trust fund and so they didn't get points for it.
7: But I remember one of them, where the project was here, and we even give them more money, and we ask them to do more things. It, Am yeah. I right? Or it, we
2: we, we it. considered it with the Herbert Hoover. It was a recommendation from HCDC that we put additional money into that sand project <laughs> to, to further <clears> lower <throat> the rents. Um, and, and, uh, another example of us going above and beyond the LIHTC money would be, uh, the Delray sewer, um, enhancement that we gave them. If you remember, they had some infrastructure costs that weren't anticipated with a, with a sewer relocation, and we gave them an, an additional 150. Um, so there's still an opportunity with, with, um, the Opportunity Fund that Tracy described, um, to, to supplement those lighttech projects or any other projects that come up. Um, we wanted to give council that flexibility. But again, we think those dollars are, are better placed in the at, at the trust fund level.
6: That makes sense to me. I mean, particularly with Simon's explanation that if they're getting more points, if those dollars are coming through the Housing Trust Fund than if they're city dollars, then there's a better chance of getting the LITAC, LITAC project approved by the state. And as Tracy said, there's language in here that if there was a reason to pull that money back and allocate it directly through the city for more points, we can always do that. And I can't find it at the moment. But my sense was, from what I read in here, that we've also got people on the Housing Trust Fund board that have been there a while and and are really into this and have maybe more experience. Simon's nodding his head in terms of these can be some very complex projects in terms of the financing, that we're getting through through the state and the way the developer is doing their financing, and so to have a group of people that really understand that complexity, um, and do it just through one process makes a lot of sense to me. So I would agree with the recommendation. Does
3: the two Does the two hundred thousand um, dollars, because I know that the five hundred thousand that we give the trust fund kind of is matched somewhere else. Does that also get matched as well?
9: The two 200- hundred. Well, when you look at a light yes, it brings in a lot of funds. So the two hundred thousand is the same amount of money. It's just now over who who recommends funding. Um, light tech applications are so competitive. Developers are going to do whatever they can to maximize their score. So if we wanted to, like San did, come back to us and asked. you know, HGDC asked for if we provided extra money, would you do this or this? We would this. Um, council didn't approve that. So th- it's still the same light project that you approved before. Um, we could use those opportunity funds if we want to do something above and beyond, and then that would come back to HCDC and council.
3: Okay. I do want to make a comment about the plan, the strategic plan in general. Um, I'm excited. I think there's a lot of uh, good opportunity that we see here um, that's being suggested. Um, you know, the private sector that you talked about, I think it was a 10% now. Um I think subsidizing, trying to figure out a way, especially since we have so much, um, we're, we're seeing vacancy throughout our community. Um, now will be the very opportune time to try to figure out how to engage that private sector and to create a more affordable housing. And so I really do believe that this is an opportunity that we should be focusing on. And you know, you talk about the $70,000 security deposits. In the world of <laughs> um, disabilities, that is a huge concern for a lot of people. And I think just in general for individuals that have um, limited, you know, living pay- paycheck to paycheck, to come down with a, even if your security deposit is 400 and your first month rent eight hundred dollars can be very hard, especially if you're on fixed income from so Social Security or something like that. And you know, the thirty thousand dollar for landlord risk mitigation, I mean there are so many people that I know um, you know, they're traveling from community to community because, you know, something happened and and, and they can't get rental, you know, a, a rental agreement. So there are some great things happening here that I do feel will increase um, one, our housing through the private sector, as well as just opportunities for more individuals within our community that could use affordable housing. And this is making pathways for those that have had traditionally a hard time. One question I do have, and I'm sorry to keep going, is um, overall just the, do we have better data on... For example, how many affordable housing units do we really need? I didn't see any of that in your, in what you presented.
9: No, we had an affordable housing market analysis that Mullen and Lonergan did back in 2007. We updated it in 2015. That does talk about um, gaps in affordable housing, what we need in the community. So we do have that data. I didn't put it in here, but this plan addresses Meant to address those gaps.
3: Do we even have it down to how many apartments we need? For example, there's a um, there is a need for four bedroom apartments mm-hmm. or you know affordable housing no, rental yeah, no, units. No, no, you're,
9: I know what you're saying. Um, no, the study basically reported in units, whether that's met in single family detached, multifamily, townhomes. It doesn't go to that specificity, specificity. I have specifics, yeah. <laughs> um, but it does talk about units. Um, Now, we are talking about, whenever we go through City Steps input, there's always that concern that we need four-bedroom multifamily. And right now, our code doesn't allow new construction of four-bedroom multifamily units. So we're going to look at that when we look at the zoning code changes, because we know larger families need that. And it's more expensive to live in a single-family detached. So you're going to pay a lot more in rent than you would in an apartment unit with four four bedrooms. So we will be looking at that with the zoning
7: code changes.
3: Awesome. And the private sector opportunity?
7: Yep. I still have a question for the going back to the Litech and two hundred. Um, is this there is in the language something saying that the two hundred have to be used only for Litech by the yes. fund trust fund. Yeah. It can only be used for Litex. And if they LIHTC don't use project. it Huh? If we if they don't use it for if there is no project for Litech on then that. That sits year. there. They still say they have. Yeah. Yes, to keep using it for yeah. that. It can only be used for Lytx. So that happened to us the first
9: year because you don't always get a Lytx project. They're that competitive. Mm-hmm. We don't always. We were lucky last year. We got two. Yes. I've been here for almost 20 years, and that's the only time I remember that happening. There's years that we won't get any application. We will apply and nothing. Um, so if it doesn't happen, then that money
7: goes to the next year. So that's what happened with Delray. They got two years' worth of our tech. But can we build down money if we have something else to do with it, if there is no tech project? It would go back to you. OK. Yeah.
2: yeah so, so every year, the council, um, it requires a resolution uh, to, to fund the trust fund. We'll bring a resolution to you. Um, and at that time, if we ever notice, and we do have a seat on the board with, with Simon currently filling that, um, if we ever notice that, you know, for instance, the LIHTC pot of money has grown to a, you know, a million dollars or something, we might suggest not giving them a year's worth of that li- those LIHTC dollars and repurposing them for another affordable housing purpose. But,
0: so uh, I'd like to draw attention to the last two sentences of the concluding paragraph in your memo. <clears throat> and express my support for the objective. So the two sentences I'm referring to read, this memo outlines a few changes that we feel will help focus the city's efforts on more cost-effective strategies that will benefit those on the lower end of the income spectrum. This will necessarily require a shift in focus away from new construction and toward the community's existing housing stock. I think it's a smart move to make.
8: I, I agree, and I, I really like this uh, these proposed changes because I think uh, they appear to be very well thought out, and especially, like, if you do A, how's that going to affect B and C? It just all seemed to flow very well.
5: But just... Uh, At least for me, I I think it all looks great. I I also like the repair piece of it. We've talked about that a lot. You get a new place, and all of a sudden you have a huge bill. What do you do, and and what restrictions do we have? That's a great job. But At least before we do um, change the review process with HCDC, I would either like, I would like to just get at least HCDC's input, and they may have the same opinion um, on that, but at least that still, I'm not supportive of that until I hear more. So I don't know how everyone else feels on that, but at least for that piece, Piece of it, even though staff's, uh, reasons seem very sound, um, I would at least like more information before I would support that particular change. But everything else looks very, very good.
0: I wouldn't want our decision to be based on what HCDC thinks. Oh no, I don't either. Is but that I want what you the, mean?
5: No, but I, but I would like their, I would like input because we're, t- as, as, as I understand it, we are changing a level of review that currently does reside, with them unless I'm mistaken. Um, So they may say, you know what, you're right, we don't want any of that, and we may disagree with them. But I would at least like that input before I'm gonna support a change to decision-making authority that currently resides within them. That's just my opinion, maybe no one else agrees.
9: This might address it, but when HCDC, when we go through each year and we, we review the projects and the applications, which come out in December, so it'll be in October, HCDC will have a new ranking criteria. So at that point, they can bring that ranking criteria to you to review. So that would be their recommendation coming back to you about how they're going to score projects. So each of our projects, public facilities, housing, we have that criteria that HCDC comes up with. So that hasn't been done for fiscal year 21 projects yet. So they will be doing that. And the suggestion, they can consider it. They can make recommendations back to you because we get the application materials approved anyway, well, through HCDC, and we can just have, we can put that, at that time they have the recommendation, it can go through you, you can look at it as well.
0: That makes sense. So I don't know. Does that satisfy your objection, Rockney? I,
5: I mean, again, I would still like the feedback. That's that's my opinion. You guys may disagree.
0: So uh, can that's we uh, can we agree to support th- all that's been recommended so far? We'd like to get some feedback from HCDC about this particular component of it, just to get feedback, which does not necessarily mean that we would agree with HCDC or not. I mean, we would just get. We may get their feedback action. and disagree with their feedback.
7: I guess would like to add a sentence on number two for the scoring. Like A, the sentence that ending with low than the HUD maximum limit. Where are you at? Number two, right? Is there another two? Under no. Yeah. Yeah. Page. Before the, the, the before this right before the... Okay, yep. Thanks. Yes. Okay. Okay. Like, each uh, maximum limit, can we just add, like, in addition, increasing available scoring for rent and housing costs that are no greater than the cost burden threshold for household with below property income? I don't
9: know
7: if I, Can you repeat that? I
0: don't understand.
7: I don't understand either. You know because I'm talking about the scoring here. Mm-hmm.
0: Are you' item two, CDBG and home paragraph A is that where you're? Paragraph A.
7: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so which sentence are you looking at?
7: After the first sentence? I just wanna say in additional increase available scoring for rents. And housing costs that are no greater than the cost burden threshold for households with below poverty incomes. I'm I'm sure can't I can't agree can or find that. I can't agree or disagree because I don't know what it means. For the people that are like below the poverty I, income, I mean, I, like yes. I'm sorry, for me, throwing a
6: sentence in the middle of that paragraph. Right now, I can't comprehend what the actual impact of that is. So I can't agree or disagree.
7: Yeah, I, I guess... Uh, talking about the low... You know, because they said here lower than the HUD yeah, maximum, maximum limits.
0: Yeah, want
7: to add more. Here, here,
0: here's my own personal thought about this. What I know about housing policies and programs is that they can become very complex... I don't want to be a person making detailed judgments about really detailed specifics of, of those kinds of things. So I trust Tracy. I trust NDS staff. Uh, I think they're trying to figure out a way to use the limited money we have in the best way possible. And I, I'm willing to go with what Tracy's recommending. You know? and rather than you or me trying to invent some language on the spur of the moment.
7: Yeah, but they recommend something, and we, we will talk to them and implement what we need. If you don't agree yes. with me, that's something else. Staff doesn't have any issues taking 2A think. to Housing
9: and Community Development Commission, because we technically would have been yes. anyway for the ranking criteria. So taking 2A through HCDC and getting the recommendation is not an issue, because we would we would have been doing it anyway, if that makes sense.
0: Okay, so item 2A can go to HCDC yes. also oh, yeah. for advice from yeah. them, right?
9: Yeah, because, yeah, but our allocation, I, like I I'm said, okay
7: applications don't even come out till December, so it's not an issue. And I know that's not crazy. That's, I, I say the HCD, that's why, you know, I'm doing it. And and that doesn't mean I'm not trusting my old stuff, by the way. We trust our staff, but the staff will bring recommendation. And we are here not to just rubber stamp the staff recommendation. We are here to talk to you back and forth. Sometime I'm, I might be wrong, and you correct me. Maybe I go, like, outside the limit of the law, and maybe Arnold can correct me. That's what it is.
0: So well, I get the point. So we have two things we want to send to HCDC for some feedback. Is, is, is that correct? Oh,
9: I think it was 2A was the what we needed HCDC feedback yeah. on.
0: And the Lytec, yeah.
2: and the issue.
9: Yes, the tech. The tech We'd have to de- well, depends on. I can issue a check to the Housing Trust Fund for five hundred thousand now. Yeah,
2: that's what we would do. That's so we'll do. do the we'll do the five hundred thousand, and then we'll wait for HCD for you to consider HCDC's recommendation. If you still decide to send the two hundred, we'll just cut a separate check
0: for that at okay. a later date. Okay. Does that sound reasonable? That's fair. Yeah. Huh? Hold
9: on. For the administrative fee, so you're okay with us removing them from the aid agency process and enter, and doing that five percent administrative fee? Yes, I am. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's all I had.
0: Okay. Natasha, you're up, but we have like eight, or at the most like twelve minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Let's give her a shot. Let's give it a
0: shot, Latasha. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. uh, sorry, She'd we didn't to wait get for to, the whole to you a little bit earlier, but it's great to see you and this, you know, f- coming here to speak to us as the senior center director and all that. So,
12: This is starting to feel real familiar, hmm. mm-hmm. having like five minutes. <laughs> That's okay. All right, so we have a memo about the kitchen that you all requested. Um, It took a little bit of time to get all the pieces together because, as you all know, the kitchen has not been um, operating at the level it has been for multiple years. So um, as you see before you, there's some equipment that we are working to acquire to just go ahead and absorb and keep in our kitchen until we're able to make some changes. Are there any specific questions? Maybe I'll do that for time purposes. Or would you like me to just walk through the memo? Well,
2: I think we just frame, let's frame the question to them. We've got a quick fix solution. And we have a longer term vision because there's a lot of building needs uh, at, at the center. So that's kind of the question that we're framing to you. Do you want a quick fix? And let's try to get this up and running. Um, or do you want to wait for this pending building study that Latasha is getting ready to, to dive into so that we have a bigger picture of the needs of the building and we can prioritize the various projects?
7: I just want to ask you about the quick fixing. Is that's going to make the kids seem licensed
12: like every... Um, um, potentially. there There's some public health things. There's some policy changes. So when we say quick fix, we mean that in... Quick, but not exactly quick. (laughs)
1: Um, So we we
12: have a couple of permits. Relative terms. (laughs) Yes. yes. We have some some changes. We would have to make sure that we have been uh, certified that it can be used in a commercial. There's some pieces that we have to do. There's some changes. There's some equipment that hasn't been used. Our stove, I don't even know if it works. Um, So some of those things have to be replaced. Uh, We just have to really kind of look into it. We have to make sure we don't have any pest issues, um, which happens in our building. Um, So, you know, there's a couple of pieces there. When we say quick fix, there are some major things that we have to uh, address, which would be uh, the refrigeration and freezer, um, the stove uh, needs to be completely replaced. The other thing that can be costly is the hooding, um, making sure that, you know, we don't have any fires, and that hasn't been used in years, so we haven't even had a chance really to have someone really get in there um, because it would cost additional... It was just costing more and more assessment fees to get this looked at. So we have some some money in a year to be able to really dig into this to make sure that we're getting it right. But we could get some basic things done where people could potentially use it after we go through a process of making sure that it's safe and, and good for uh, consumption. Natasha, do I, I,
0: do I understand correctly that the uh, building assessment study would be completed by spring of next year?
12: That's our hope is that... It we have someone come in who will be able to look at the entire building, but specifically they would be able to um, look at uh, the kitchen and to make sure that it can be used um, for public. Because f- for the last 35 years, it's only been used by an organization to prepare meals for outside. It's never been used. The senior center staff has actually never been the people who have been the folks running that kitchen. So it's, it's new for us. So we have some work we'll have to do on our end to, to make that happen. Sure.
3: I do you think the forty to sixty thousand may not be accurate? I, I did a tour of that kitchen. Um, I, I think it might be, from my perspective, wise since we, you know, have the potential of just getting a, a whole collaborative mm-hmm. look at the center. Um, to do that first and then make a decision from there.
12: Yes, I think, it, I think it would just be helpful because there may be some things that we need to change, for instance, in the, the room next to it that we might need to get some assessment about that before we do any major things in there. I just think, I don't want us to be in a situation where we fix some things and then later we have to come back and we have to redo some things and then it costs us more money. That was my biggest concern. It's like, we can, we can do this and change some things up, but then you know, what other repairs are we not seeing? One thing I know about the senior center is when you open the wall. <laughs> <laughs> Things are different, <laughs> so it's an older building. So you know, it can look like this on the front, but then as we get into it, it can have some more costs. Well, I'd, really like,
0: I I'd really like to see the kitchen used, but access right. to yes. Yes. for several months. Yeah. I,
12: agree. I think the kitchen um, renovation will actually hit on a lot of your strategic goals once I think, we get yes, it. To where we'd it have it is. a better
8: idea of, of yeah. the cost too, yes. than a, a bit better estimate, and then we can hopefully budget uh, to help out with with funding of that, or find sources to help with that. Great. So could be a lot more.
7: Yeah. I guess it makes sense, but you know, really, this kitchen, the people have been waiting for it since they are like remodeling the the, the rec center. At that time, this come up, so they can have kitchen there, yes. and the city manager said, no, this is they can use the kitchen of the you know the senior center. Mm. And now this is like taking years without any action until the people start coming here and talk about it, and still we want to defer it. Uh, to me, it's really concerned that we, we are not doing this quick. Even though I, I understand that you know everything that you said is logic, and we don't need to do the job twice. Yeah. But I hope this will be like rather next spring. Really,
12: this is. Taken long. Well, I mean, I think it, once we get a better look at what we need to do, we will be able to come back with some different numbers. It, it, regardless it's going to take time. It's and
7: we are not talking t- yeah. about like fixing things, just assessment what the building
12: needs, yes, right? Yes. Yes.
7: And it's going to take all this long.
12: It's going gonna, it's gonna to take a while for the assessment to be done because it's a full building assessment. So we have to look at the entire building to make sure that we're compliant in all the areas. And that's just something that hasn't been done over there for a while. But the kitchen is included in that so that we can kind of figure out what we need to do. Now, we're, we're offering the quick fix that we could potentially get the freezers and refrigerators going and get some folks in there and try to make that happen, but I just, I'm just not sure. I mean, regardless, it's going to take some time because, like I said, the senior center staff has never been the folks who run that kitchen. So in some realities, we almost need another staff person to operate the kitchen because it's always been operated by the director from Elder Services for the last 30 plus years. So our staff is not even currently equipped to run that kitchen in a way that it's being proposed to be used for com- community consumption. So sure. there's, that's, that's some of the some of the delay as well is will we have to come back and request for another position or halftime position to specifically make sure that that is being able to used to the level that we want it to be able to be used for revenue purposes, but also for the community to be able to use it appropriately and safely. Fair enough, yeah. Yeah.
5: OK, so I think we're in general agreement here. For what it's worth, I would like to explore the basic option, realizing that if it turns impractical, we could defer. But that would be my, my choice. But okay. it looks like the noses aren't lining up with my view. So, oh. Which one? so the basic, I, I do support oh. the evaluation of the basic as opposed to deferring for the more long term. But that doesn't seem to have you know, the support. Yeah, I think so
0: the, the, the amount of time involved in deferring to spring is not very much.
12: Okay. So it, it just it just is something that it really does take. It it at the same, same time, time, we have this anyway. huge plaster yeah. project going on, and so um, we just have to we'll get it done. It'll yes. get done. But, but yeah, but point. you know
7: when they start, they have to give it the priority. They start with the kitchen and but so to your you point,
12: I think it. that was
5: a really good point of. I was concerned that all of a sudden, you'd have all these outside users that would come
12: in, and then you know, how would that affect the other senior center users? Mm-hmm. So it's a balance. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, the reason why I'm bringing up the plaster piece is because the plaster is right near the kitchen. And so we have to think about our consumers. And that's already going to be a major project. And if we have two major projects going, that means we're going to have to, what are we going to do with the folks who need to eat lunch every day? Yep. So we really have to be thinking about consumers of the space as well, about how we make that happen. Now, a study is not going to shut anything down. They're just going to come in and look. But if we start moving things around, we really have to, we can We can make it happen if that's what you all want us to do. But just letting you know that there are some other pieces that we have been waiting for, some some changes and some updates.
0: Okay. Okay. I think you have a decision. Okay. All right. All right. Good deal. So it's 19 till, but it's, uh, um adjourn the work session to after the formal meeting and so we'll see y'all at 7 o'clock so here I, I have a suggestion and mainly it's that we not consider items IP7 and IP8 that we defer consideration of them to our next meeting I Uh, agree. Because it is a quarter to 11. I would agree. And I think we also have to figure out a listening post. That's the other thing I know of that was on in that package that we could mention. I suggest we not do that either tonight. So is there anything anybody thinks we really need to consider before we go home? Oh, i I'm sorry. Maybe I spoke too quickly.
7: No, I, I didn't get what you said. I'm
0: sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm basically saying it's late. We're all tired. Yes. Let's not He's do dead. any more work sessions. Kelly yes. wants to
5: bring something out. I'm telling you. <laughs>
0: That's legal language. <laughs> but, you know, yes. We're adjourned. Right. We
7: have to wait. Yes. <laughs> work
0: MD, sessions right. adjourned. Yeah. Thank yes. you.